Thank you, Jessica and Michelle. As they were singing that song, I found, I thought to myself, how good of God to give that invitation. Wander, come home. The word, the message hasn't even started yet in one sense, but yet God doesn't wait for the message before he begins to speak. He can speak anytime he wants in any form and fashion. And so the invitation is out there for wander, come home. What a beautiful hope that we have to lay our burdens on Christ. And that's why we're all here this morning, as we were reminded in our worship time. It's all about Christ in our strengths and our weaknesses. Speaking about distractions and things not going as you planned this morning, I was sitting back there as I have been every morning for Sunday school. And John's been teaching out of Ephesians and he read a passage in Ephesians 2. And the verse in verse 20 just enthralled me as I'm listening to this. And and my mind is expanding, thinking about it's the verse about. Building us. God's people into the temple of God, the household of God, and of course, including Gentiles so that he can dwell among us. And so God's spirit dwells among us. And I'm just thinking about the implications of what it's like for God to dwell among people and remembering the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament and the cloud and the fire and how it came into the temple, the literal temple, the physical temple and How it's a supernatural thing. And what does it look like for God to desire to dwell in his people today? We are the temple of God. And just as foreigners might witness the literal temple in the Old Testament today, they should witness the manifestation of God through the people of God. So I'm just thinking about that, enjoying that thought. And it's coming up on almost 10 o'clock and Madison Gilmore humbly comes through that door and has a look on her face. And as soon as I see that look, I I remember, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be downstairs substituting for Janet Lurzer teaching Sunday school. (laughs) So here I was enjoying this and missing out on that. So, uh, yeah, things don't always go as we planned. That's a sign of young age, I think you would say. Well, welcome to New Covenant Fellowship, and it is an honor to be gathered here with the saints of God. We are studying the book of Nehemiah, and we will be in chapter two this morning. And when we introduced our book, Nehemiah, that basically chapter one begins with Nehemiah, who is in exile in Babylon. He is very anxious to hear about this report from his brothers who had visited the motherland of Jerusalem. He wants to know how the remnant is doing there. And he receives the report, but it's all bad news. The report is that the city is in ruins. The walls are in ruins. The gates have been burned and the people are being shamed and they're in disgrace. And so there is this social stigma. They're being taxed. They're being mocked. They're they're being made fun of. They're being bullied. But also there was spiritual shame in that they're also not living exactly like they should for God in that they have married And intermingled with foreign wives. And so Nehemiah's response to this news is similar to many other Old Testament people or saints when they hear such news. And that is he basically just hits the ground and pours his heart out to God. He's he's in a state of mourning, in a state of grief. And we read that in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And in this prayer, we saw two things. First, he asked God to remember his promise, to remember his word. God did say to Israel, if you disobey me, I will discipline and you will be cast into exile. But he also said, if you turn your heart back to me, I will bring you back into the land and reestablish you. And so his first request to God is, God, remember your word. Remember your promise. We're hanging on your promise. You said if we do this and they have begun to turn their hearts back, that you would reestablish us. And then the second request where we ended was basically for success. Because we ended on this note in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And so he is praying for success in the sight of this man. He is not content with just praying about the the havoc that is in Jerusalem. He wants boots on the ground, so to speak. He wants to do something about it. He wants to play a part in reestablishing it. But he has to get permission from this mysterious man that he's talking about, which, of course, turns out to be the king of Persia. And he is the cupbearer. So let's look at first Nehemiah's request to the king in the first eight verses of chapter two. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. To the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. That he may give timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So we find that the reason Nehemiah prayed his second request for success in the sight of this man is because he is the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah can't just make this kind of decision. He can't just decide, I'm going to go back and help my people because he is accountable to the king as a cupbearer. He needs permission. So he doesn't pull the, the, the God's will trump card that, and barge into the chambers and say, King, like it or lump it, I'm going back to my home city. He goes through the proper channels. 
Uh, also, his life is in danger at even being there and making this request. So he's under the earthly authority of Artaxerxes, and he respects that. And as a cupbearer, his behavior and everything he does is closely monitored. The reason he's closely monitored is because the cupbearers in that day and age were very played a very important role to the king. They got closer than most people, with the exception of the family. And so the cupbearers were monitored in the sense that it, because they're close to the king, they had that privilege and that trust. But they also are the, some of the most dangerous or or pose a threat to the king because he is so close. And so it had to be a very, very trusted person. You did not want to to go into the king's presence with this sad countenance. Because the king might get suspicious that you're up to something. And the king, of course, always has enemies because one of the things kings do is conquer other peoples. And so other peoples who have been conquered are always wanting to get the king back. And so there's this, this it's this tense relationship where you're trusted more than most. But also there's this suspicion that is out there as well, because you're so close to the king that you might be the very one in the position to take his life. And so. For Nehemiah to even carry this sad countenance was a risky thing to do. He is a man of great influence, but also a great uh, danger. But he's under the loyal oath of this king to serve him. So what you do, there's a royal etiquette. You are to come into the king's presence. And the idea is that you're to be so pleased because he's such a powerful person that basically you should always wear a smile. Because he might be suspicious that you're up to something, but also you don't dare bring your personal problems before the king. Those are yours. Keep those at home. Only come before the king with a smile. So there's that royal etiquette there. So even the countenance is monitored. And that's why Nehemiah says in verse three, then I was very much afraid. The king noticed this. And he realized that that could have been the end of his life right there. Or there could have been some grave consequences, one for maybe looking guilty or suspicious or two, just for bringing your personal problems before the king. You're not supposed to burden him for that. So this is why he says, let the king live forever. The first words out of his mouth. What is he doing? He's letting the king know all is well. There's no threat here. Everything's safe. But yes, thank you for noticing. I am very, very sad. I am very, very Burden. So he reassures him of his loyalties. But he's not so scared that he backs down. He's not so scared for his life that he refuses to share with the king what is truly on his heart, because that's how real it is to him. And this news that he heard was a life changing experience. He is now burdened for his people and he wants to do something about it. So he uses this informal opportunity to share this. And we think it's informable, informal because the queen is seated beside the king. And that's usually for some sort of informal party, because usually the queen would not be in that position. So maybe he thinks this is a wise time in this informal atmosphere for him to share his heart with the king. And so the king gives him that opportunity. And he's very wise in the way he makes his request. He says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates 
have been destroyed by fire. Interesting choice of words, because in chapter one, the specific report was that the yes, the walls have been destroyed, but also the people are being mocked they're being tormented. They're being oppressed and there is sin in the camp as well. That's why he's so burdened. But yet he puts so his burden is on the living. And yet he puts before the king the emphasis on the dead. It's my father's graves. So why would he do that? Because in the, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the graves were sacred. Tombs were sacred. And so this king would hear that news. And to him, that's what would be the dearest to his heart. <clears throat> he would hear that news and it would, it would per, perhaps be the thing to cause him to be sympathetic to Nehemiah's calls. And lo and behold, it works. It works. He immediately asks, what is it that you request? So it's kind of like he's saying, I'm with you. I can identify with that, Nehemiah. Tombs, yes, graves, our forefathers, it's sacred. That should not be done. What do you want? And it's here that in verse four that Nehemiah shoots up what we might call an arrow prayer. If you ever uttered an arrow prayer, it's, it's just that quick little prayer. Where we're, we're asking, we're talking to God, and it's in the midst of other things. It's the conversation within the conversation. So the, the king is there. They're in this dialogue. And yet Nehemiah is also talking to God. We don't know exactly what he says. He may have prayed for wisdom. He's asked me, ask me what I want. Lord, what do I want? Or he may be just thanking the Lord very quickly that he's still alive, that this didn't go wrong. Or that he may be thanking the Lord that he, yes, he has this opportunity. The king is actually willing to hear him out. But he's talking to God in the midst of this activity and this conversation. And this reminds me of the New Testament exhortation by the Apostle Paul for us to pray without ceasing. And I used to read that as a new Christian. I think, how, how is that possible? How can you pray without ceasing? And it's not possible if you only define prayer as those times where you remove yourself from distractions and activities and it's just you and God and you get there and you're not working, you're not playing, you're not doing anything but praying. And if that's all that prayer is, then I think it is impossible to pray without ceasing because life goes on and there's things to do. We have responsibilities and tasks and concerns. But life is not just removing yourself from the distractions or um, prayer is not just removing yourself from distractions. Prayer is just com communication with God, conversation with God any time of the day. So we can shoot these prayers and we can talk to God in the midst of our activity. And that's how we can pray without ceasing. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. And really, it's a beautiful thing. I know throughout the day I rely on this kind of prayer. There are times where we seclude ourselves and we get away from all the distractions, but we're not able to do that. So when we're on the job, when we're at school, driving down the road with friends, whatever it is, we can have this constant communication with God. And really what that is, it's a sign of a healthy relationship. A sign of a healthy relationship that we feel the freedom to speak to the Lord in those terms. And I'm reminded of our study of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. And the very first words were, were, here's how you approach God, our Father who art in heaven. 
And we're so used to that terminology. And yet in that day and age, that would be considered too informal. That's too informal of a way to approach the God of the universe. He's too big and vast and mighty. We don't dare call him our father. And yet God, the son is teaching his people to approach him as God, the father. And what's wrapped up in that is, yes, there's disrespect. We respect our earthly fathers. We know about that. There are limits and there's boundaries to what we can do. But yet there's also this warmness and this chumminess because our fathers we know are there for us any time of day. And children have access to their fathers. And so it's this tremendous invitation for the people of God to talk to him whenever and wherever. And so here's his servant, Nehemiah. Basically, we don't know what he said, but he's saying something while he is in the midst of the king. It's that ongoing prayer. It's been said that Nehemiah walked with God because Nehemiah talked with God. There's a scripture in Isaiah 65, 24, where God is speaking to his people. And here's what he says. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. If that's not an invitation by God, to hear us, for us to to converse with him throughout the day. I don't know what is it, He is making himself so available to us. And I hope that we have that kind of relationship with the Lord. As a matter of fact, it would it doesn't offend me to know that many of you probably are having a conversation within this conversation that you may be speaking to the Lord. I hope that as God's word goes out. During our time of of preaching the revealed word that you are in communication with God. Lord, what do you have for me in this verse? What are you speaking to my heart? Now, if you talk amongst yourself, that's rude. It's it's interruption. It's a distraction. But if in the privacy of your heart, if you're you're pouring your heart out to God, you're talking to him. How can I apply this? What does this mean for me? Thank you for that word or that scripture. That's exactly what I need to hear. To hear that's perfectly safe and legal in this place of worship. And actually, I hope that that is happening every Sunday after Sunday. And it appears that this little prayer, this arrow prayer reached heaven the moment, if not before it was prayed, because he finds favorable circumstances. And what he's asking of the king is no small thing. Because if you recall in Ezra chapter four, the king made a decree that the work in Israel was to stop in no uncertain terms. Because when Ezra was there and attempted to rebuild the wall, they met opposition, Sanballat and Tobiah and so forth. They wrote this nasty letter to the king and they said, these rebellious people, they're rising up. They got a reputation for wickedness and rebellion. And here they are trying to rebuild. They're just going to bring havoc into your kingdom. They're not going to pay your taxes. And so they wrote that to the king. And this king said, basically, uh, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Ezra chapter four. So it's this very king that decreed mm-mm, no work there. And now because of Nehemiah's tact, because of Nehemiah's prayer, his courage, the same king is saying, you may certainly go back. 
And how can I assist you? What is it? What exactly are you looking for? This is another powerful example of the proverb that talks about how God directs the kings of hearts like water. They're in his hands. And the same king that stopped the work is now for the work. He's asking for more details. He wants to know a time frame. He wants to know exactly what Nehemiah is up to. Well, this plan of Nehemiah doesn't just affect Nehemiah. It affects him as the king, because now what's he going to do? He has to. There's just not a line of cupbearers. I mean, these you have to go through rigorous testing. You have to be very, very trusted to do this. And so he knows Nehemiah well enough to even pick up the countenance on his face. So it's an inconvenience for Nehemiah to leave his presence for these times. And so Nehemiah communicates his deepest respect in verse seven, if it pleases the king. Again, he's not making demands. He's keeping the relationship with the king as solid as he possibly can. There's a lesson there in working Within the boundaries and the limits that God places us in. The Nehemiah is under an earthly authority and he recognizes that this is by the will of God. And his method for getting what he wants isn't to, to be blatant and demanding. God wants me to do this, so I'm going to do this without you, with you or without you. He trusts God enough to go to the Lord to work within the boundaries and the limits and the earthly authorities that God has set in place over him. So he's trusting that if God wants this done, he's going to change the heart of the king. He's going to change the circumstances and the minds of the people that will prevent me from doing what I'm burdened to do. And that's exactly what God does in answering this prayer. He goes through these channels. And so now, rather than escaping the king or being an enemy of the king and a rebel and just leaving his presence and doing what he wants to do, now he has the king's blessing. The king's backing, the king's authority. So he's working through that avenue and that channel and the boundaries. You know, we, we have these same situations in the home. We have mom and dad's authorities, but even in, of course, at school teachers and in the workplace. How do we go about bringing forth the change that we think God wants to, to bring forth? Well, I think a wise way that Nehemiah has done is to trust God enough to change the circumstances and to change the situation rather than being obnoxious or offensive and trying to bring forth that change in the flesh. And Nehemiah, in his request, basically tries to cover every conceivable base that he would face, every hindrance that he would face. I mean, he is asking for every everything, every obstacle to be overcome. So he asks for uh, traveling papers so the governors wouldn't in, in the land beyond the river wouldn't oppose him in his work and his people. He asked for an army escort. So if any bandits tried to attack them and rob or steal them or bring harm to them, he's got the king's army right there. Something that Ezra decided not to take with him. Ezra decided simply to trust in God's protection. Nehemiah has no problem with asking for this military escort. Perfectly within bounds. He also asked for permission for to use the timbers from the king's forest to build the walls and even his own house. So he's like really thought through this. What do I really need to get this job done? And he asked the king for all of it. 
And the king grants it. See, Nehemiah wants success. He wants a successful journey. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting success. There's nothing wrong with asking God to bless our endeavors and the burdens that he has given us to fulfill and to walk out. To ask God to bless our ministry. Success is not a bad thing. Now, pride is a bad thing, but success is not a bad thing. So he wisely uh, respects the king in the way he presents himself and the way he presents his request. But notice where the credit goes in verse eight. The king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. That's so important. Because he's realizing that what has just taken place is incredible. The king has changed his mind and I have his backing, his blessing. I have his resources. But it wasn't really the king. That's called the good hand of God. He sees that as the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. So that God gets the credit. That's how things come to pass. And that's who deserves the credit. Any great work. From the good hand of God. And I think about even this morning, and we've been here in this place many, many years, several decades, but how did this all come about? From the good hand of God. Because God went before people, God burdened people's hearts, minds were changed, He gathered people, He, he created friendships, and people gave their time and their money, and they had a unity of vision, and they came together, and God formed this church so that this church can do a good work for the glory of God. People gave money, people gave land, people gave time and made sacrifices. How did all that happen? It's the good hand of God bringing about a work that he desires to do. And God gets the credit for all of it, the outworking of his plan. So God, we're here because God has a specific use for us, a customized, unique use for a way that this particular local body can minister to his people. Of course, one of these ways are the retreats that we are in the midst of. We had the girls retreat. Wonderful things happened with that. God just graciously poured his spirit out into these girls hearts. What a beautiful thing to be a part of when we're when we hear such all the news headlines. It's it's so distressing. And yet in this little place, by God's good hand, lives are being changed. People are growing. God is being exalted. The excellencies of Christ are being recognized because of the good hand of God. So he makes sure that God gets the credit for it. It is said that the temptation for pride is never far away. Robert Murray Machane was a famous pastor uh, during some of the revival days in in the 1800s. Used greatly by God. He literally burned himself out ministering to the Lord. He he didn't live very long as a pastor because he just he never stopped in his ministry. I don't know about what lesson is in there for that. But here's one thing that he did say in the midst of that. A a Scottish minister in 1833. Here's an excerpt out of his journal. November 14th. 1833, he says, I fear the love of applause. May God keep me from preaching myself instead of Christ crucified. See that I think that's the power of what Nehemiah is doing here. 
And great things are happening. And he could very easily take credit for it. He's a tactful man. He's very wise. He's very capable. But it's the good hand of God that brings these things about. And second, we see Nehemiah's inspection in verses 9 through 16. And yes, you know me. My points are often lopsided. And the last several points are much shorter than the first. So don't panic in, in your seats. But Nehemiah's inspection, verses 9 through 16. I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them, great, displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were to do the work. So when Nehemiah arrives safely in Jerusalem, he doesn't come in fanfare and say, guys, I'm here. Everything's all right. And here's the plan and have this grand entrance and announcement. He's 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 very calculated. He's not an impulsive person person at all. He's um, maybe what we learned in studying Proverbs. He's the philosophical type where he says, wait a minute, let's not overreact or underreact. Let's just really think this through so we can make the proper decision. And that's what he is doing here. He's calculating. He wants to assess the situation with his own eyes. So he goes out secretly to see what he's up against so that he can come up with a proper plan, an effective plan, and then go public about it. And he does find that this bad report from his brothers is true. The, the gates are a mess. The walls are a mess. The people are a mess. So he evaluates, he calculates, and then it's time to present his plan to the people. Verses 17 through 18, and he makes this proposal. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He points out the obvious, guys, we're in trouble. The city's a mess. We're not doing very well here. And the time has come to do something about it. There's been times where we, it was not within our power to do anything about our status. But now it's within our power. So let us rise and do this good work. Let us join together. And so that's what they do. And he shares his testimony, his burden, and they trust him. They see this is surely from God. This guy's not for out for his own interest, as many other leaders have been. He truly cares. He's willing to make personal sacrifices. He left the king's chambers and the luxuries of that life to come here 
into this place of ruins and to work among us and to come beside us so that we can reestablish ourselves as the people of God. And so he says, let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hand for the good work. Stan Ever said Nehemiah had everything ready so that they could start work at once. For 90 years, the people had been too discouraged and downtrodden to attempt anything. But now they were eager to get started without any delay on the building of the walls. So in essence, he's saying, let's do this thing. Let's build. Let's get it done. The time has come and the people are willing. They start stretching and touching their toes and they where's the rocks? Where's the mortars? I'm in. I want to do this. The time is right. And it's a good work. So in their world, in their lifetime, that was God's calling for them. The remnant. The good work of God. It's a good work. What the good work for them was a material thing at this time. It was to build walls so they could be protected from their enemies. So that they could begin to reestablish themselves spiritually. It's hard to grow and it's hard to focus on God when you're being tormented, when you're being mocked, when you're being picked on, when you're not allowed to reestablish yourself. And so the good work for them was a, was to to physically exert themselves. It was manual labor to build the walls so that the people of God can have some safety and some privacy to offer their sacrifices and to grow in the Lord. That was the good work that God called them to do in the midst of their times. What is the good work that God calls us to do in the midst of our times? Now, we are also living in a day where where we would say compared to where we've come from, our nation is in a nosedive down into immorality and insecurity and vulnerability. All these decisions that are being made. And people are very cynical today because so much trust has been broken and people are apathetic and it's hard to keep wanting to care. It's hard to keep wanting to be involved and do good. And and evil is becoming more and more rampant. If you read the headlines, we have we have terrorism, but we we also have our own evil amongst ourselves and our own immorality without the help of external and internal terrorism. So what do we do? What is the good work? What does God expect from the people of Christ? This church that we read about in Ephesians 2.20, that where God says, I'm building you up. You're all pieces to this temple that I'm building so that my presence can dwell in you. Well, we are to be the light in this darkness and we are to be the ones that continue to hope in what's good and to continue to do the good thing and the next good thing, even though those around us may be apathetic or cynical or even growing more and more evil. We are the ones that have the hope and do not let it get us down and do not let it become discouraged to the point where we're complacent or paralyzed. Why? Because our eye, our good eye, is on heaven. Our good eye is on the reality of the kingdom of God, that this world is not all there is. Yeah, there's going to be terrible decisions made And lots of evil and lots of suffering. So how can the people of God still rejoice and find any peace in this life? It's because we realize this is not all there is. And actually what's really happening is God is rebuilding his kingdom. And so we can live in peace and joy and still go on with our families and our jobs. With a sense of contentness and not get sucked into that dark place. 
Because God is real and he is doing something. And this brings, as I think about the opposition in our last point that um, Nehemiah faces after his proposal. Sanballat, Tobiah, the same guys, the troublemakers. Verse 19, they jeered at us and they despised us. What is this thing that you're doing, they said. Are you rebelling against the king? Same words. And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He's basically saying, you got to do what you got to do. And we're going to do what we got to do. We're the people of God. And this is what God has called us to. And we will prosper in our work. Look at the pattern that we see constantly in Scripture. The closer you get to God and doing God's will and building his kingdom, the closer you get to that, the opposition becomes more and more severe. And so it can be argued just like in the life of Christ. Notice that as he was raised and then began to get closer and closer to the cross, that's when he faced the most opposition. That's when people really mocked and really jeered and false accusations were made. And the reason that this passion comes about, and it happens to us as well, the reason the suffering and the mockering and the disgrace comes is not because we're losing the battle. It's because we're getting closer to winning it. It's because we're winning the battle. The reason that Christ was persecuted at that time because he was so close to the cross because that's where the battle was fought. And, and there's a nervousness in the camps of evil about the progress that's being made. And so we're mocked and we're persecuted because of the victory. It's because we're winning, not because we are losing. And can we prosper? Yes. We, his servants, will arise. God will make us prosper. Heaven will make us prosper. We will arise and build. Reminds me of John's word to the disciples. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now that is the, that's the big picture of things that we need as believers to be able to press on in our day and time. He who is in you is greater. All the things that are happening in the world right now are insignificant in the sight of the big picture of the greatness of God. God's plan is what's the most important thing. And God's plan shall come to pass. So we want to know that as we overcome the obstacles. We have to know that he is greater. We have to know that his desire is to prosper us and not hinder us in the ministry. So knowing the big plan helps. And knowing that it is because we are winning the victory of Christ in our lives. That opposition often comes. So the good work of God. Knowing that we are citizens of heaven, knowing that God has called us in particular in this day and age, as it seems like in one sense, our nation, maybe even the church is headed in south. He's calling us to true north to keep our eyes on him. Yes, those things are happening, but we are to stay focused on Christ and live our lives that glorify Christ. That is the good work. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. 
Let us continue to arise and build this temple and be desirous for the Spirit of God to dwell in us so that he might continue to be magnified and exalted in our lives. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.